0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day.
1: My name is Tracy, and I am an alcoholic, Hi, and I am nervous as all heck right now, so i uh, Please excuse the jitters, they're not because of alcohol, because I have been sober since August the 4th, 2011. Um, it is a great privilege I stand before you today, thank you. Um, this will be a learning experience for me as well, speaking in public about something that I am not experienced with as far as sobriety is concerned because my sobriety date has only been a year and a half. Um, So please indulge me as I try to get through this right here. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that we as alcoholics, when we gather together in fellowship, can speak about our previous experiences with alcohol with humor. We can look back on it, and because of our fellowship, we can relate to one another and laugh about it. I want to say that as a disclaimer, because there are probably some people in here that have friends or family or relatives that are not alcoholics, and I'm not laughing about or saying stories laughing at the expense of their pain. So with that disclaimer, I'd like to continue. Um, I guess probably the best way to start is to uh, describe my background a little bit. <clears throat> I come from a very strict family. I moved 13 times before I went to college. My parents discovered a book called The Coming Revolution, Parent Revolution. And for those of you that are in your 40s or 50s, your parents might have discovered this book. It is... Uh, a book about structure, and I was raised with structure. I was raised with uh, a rule, rules, um, one through eighteen, on the refrigerator, that if I didn't iron my clothes by seven thirty on Friday, I was the P equals penalty was no phone for a week. If I did not uh, clean the bathroom to the specifications. Of my mother, who was a clean freak, she would clean the house before the maid came in. Um, Then penalty would equal no outside for a week. Uh, One of the funniest punishments that my parents gave to my sister and I, who's three years younger, was when we would argue, 8 o'clock at night, keeping the household up, we would have to run around the house, no matter the weather, And at that time, we were living in Indiana in January. This is a memory that I have not lost yet. (laughs) uh, With our snow boots on, shouting the lap, lap one, lap two, around this big English Tudor house in a sloping landscape, all the neighbors would actually go outside with their coffee and their cigarettes and watch my sister run around the house. And my parents thought that would be a way for us to laugh, and that would be the end of the argument. Well, it worked. But uh, that was basically, you know, the beginning of my, you know, that was my, my structure of my life. My first drink was at age 16. I uh, worked at Howard Johnson's as a waitress in Boston, Massachusetts, or right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, I filled in for a cocktail waitress back in the late 70s and early 80s, you could serve liquor at the age of 18. Now, I was 16, so since I wasn't making the drinks, I could serve the liquor. I had a crush on the bartender. <clears throat> Excuse me. His name was Scott Reed. Cute guy. And, uh, I, he would, you know, I would have Diet Cokes as I was serving these, you know, people in the lounge in a Howard Johnson's. And, uh, I noticed it tasted a little funny. Yes, I really did not know it was alcohol until about the third drink. It was flat, right? The soda was flat or whatever. But I knew it was alcohol by the third drink. And I kind of liked it. I was 16 years old. I was serving cocktails. I was making good money. And uh, I drove home that night. And uh, <clears throat> I was bouncing off the walls my parents promptly took me into their car and took me to the county jail uh, where I was put in a cell and was told about the terrible and horrific ramifications of drunk driving. Well, my parents wanted to basically go over there and fire the manager because, oh, I didn't know I was drinking alcohol. And uh, of course, then uh, I ended up not working there anymore and that was that. At the age of 17, I was in the Soviet Union on an exchange program. Second, uh, tryst with alcohol. Uh, Soviet, Soviet Union back in the 80s, vodka capital of the world, hello. <laughs> I, I, was, I was at home and didn't even know it. Drank again, of course, like I did when I was 16. Drank to, you know, drank to, uh, the equivalent equivalency of finding myself in a hotel room with the Czechoslovakian Olympic water polo players in a hotel, dancing to Greece. So, uh, you know, that wasn't a good experience either. My parents heard about that later, and I was lucky to see the daylight, you know, before my graduation. <clears throat> Fast forward, graduation, go to college. The very first night that I was in college, and by the way, I, I, I chose the college that was as far away from where my family was as possible. And uh, got drunk the very first day in a fraternity house. Imagine that. <clears throat> and be- that begun my illustri- illustrious career as a 1.7 GPA gal <laughs> at Purdue University. And remember, back then, we're talking early 80s, it cost 11 grand for my parents to pay for that 1.7 GPA. Shoulda woulda known, right? Well, that summer I came home and my parents with my younger sister, who's three years younger than I, went to a counseling session because Tracy's an alcoholic at 19. And I had that counselor manipulated to the point where he thought my parents were crazy because they're so strict. And isn't it normal for a kid in college to drink? And okay, so what? A 1.7 GPA? It's okay. You know, all is cool. Well, I actually did maintain a little bit, not sobriety, but at least a little bit of functionalism until my mid-20s. And I say I'm still in college at this time. I kind of told my parents I graduated and let them throw me a party and I hadn't graduated. I was very much in love and dating a man who was an alcoholic as well. And he ended up wrapping himself around a tree because of alcohol. I think that that is a time when I started drinking heavily. As we all know with Bill's story, alcoholism is progressive. And it is a beautiful thing when younger people come into this program before they hit that bottom. I did not. Like a lot of us, I did have to hit bottom. The death of a man that asked me to marry him and I said no because he was an alcoholic really threw me into the spiral. I was driving around in my car with a gin and tonic at all times. So I finally did graduate, by the way. (laughs) My parents never experienced that graduation party because I graduated earlier. And I moved to Florida and started teaching school in Miami-Dade County. I, uh, God, I'm so lucky. The men that I've met in my life, ex-boyfriends, ex-fiances, and there have been a few of them, are really fantastic men. But this particular man is the one that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time, but not traditionally as we here know it. He was a DEA agent. And uh, I was teaching school. And dating him. And I was bartending. Oh, imagine that, an alcoholic bartending. Bartending on weekends, holidays, and during the summer. In fact, I made more money bartending than I did teaching. Um, That was the first of my DUI experience. Um, First time I got thrown in jail, and I was out within two hours because I knew somebody who knew somebody. Second time I got thrown in, I was taken out quite quickly because of my boyfriend. Third time I got thrown in, I got off on a, on a, you know, a technicality. This is all in one year at the age of 28 years old. But that was okay because everybody else I hung out with, drank, Partied, had a good time. They had babysitters watch their kids and go out. You know, I thought that this was the norm. Well, (laughs) it wasn't the norm, was it, as we know now? I found out uh, after a blackout with this gentleman that uh, he was going to ask me to marry him the next weekend at a wedding, but I did not remember the ugliness and the meanness of the things that I said and did to him, and he never really even told me what I said and did. It was just pretty bad, obviously, because he didn't ask me to marry him, and we were broken up. My stuff was outside of his house because we were living together at that time. And, of course, I didn't have a whole heck of a lot in savings. What did I do with all that money? Drank it away, of course. And uh, I was on my own again. That's when the blackouts started happening when I drank. From the age of 28 until the day I stopped drinking, almost 20 years later, I was a blackout, ugly, mean, awful, drunk The only people that know me now are people that know me as a drunk, except for those of you that I've met in this fellowship. The fact that these people, my friends and my family, still associate with me is amazing. I always fell down when I drank. I had bruises from head to toe. I had my boss at one time told me that he thought that I was being beaten up by my husband. And for those of you that know Michael, know that that is almost an impossibility. I actually fell down and hit my head on the sink at my house and uh, walked into the walk-in clinic the next day because of, a a gash that was huge, and it needed stitches. And I walked in laughing, thinking, oh, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila, four. Ha, 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 ha. And everybody was laughing about it. Got it stapled, and that was it. There's still blood in my grout, by the way, from that, and I refused to clean it up as a reminder. I finally decided to quit drinking on August the 3rd, 2011 my husband had had enough of me remember he only knew me as a drunk I've been with this man for 16 17 years now and he only has known me as a drunk I don't know how he put up with me (laughs) but he did and uh he decided that he needed to time out. Ask me where he went for his time out. His ex-wife's house. That's where he spent the next six weeks. Or uh, maybe it was two months. Um, on that day that he left, and he was sobbing more than I was. He didn't want to leave me. It wasn't because of love as much as it was for fright and fear of what was going to happen to me. I experienced a detox that, of course, as an egotistical alcoholic that I am, bar none, nobody has experienced this kind of detox before. For two weeks, I was shivering. And I did this at home alone. Stupid. Nobody do that. I was at home alone, and I uh, was shivering, throwing up, vomiting, all that. You guys know what detox is about. I don't need to remind you about that. But I did that at home on my own. And uh, he would check in on me on weekends, make sure I had my cigarettes, and uh, make sure I was safe. Three weeks later... I walked into my first AA meeting. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and I lived near campus, USF campus. And I was on the Internet looking for meetings that were close to me. Now, it's been three weeks since my last drink. And I found out that there was a meeting on campus, it gave me the address, and I found this place. Now campus is a little confusing, you know, buildings, blah, 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 roads, yeah. Finally found that, and there was a note on that wall saying that it had been moved to another location, which was two miles on the way other side of the campus. Now I'm on foot here. And it's uh, August, and it's hot, and I trek my way on over to that side of campus and find where this meeting is at. And it's at a church on Church Row, off of 50th Street in USF. By the way, USF 164. Please come. Uh, and it's a blur. I've had to had to solicit the help of the people that were there to remind me of this. So please forgive me if I'm wrong on my memory of this. But I walked in, and I believe there were seven people there. There was a woman, and then there were six men. I was sweating, uh, obviously, and I was a mess. I'd had an hour and a 45 minutes to contemplate why am I going to get to this AA meeting. I got there, and they had finished the meeting and were about ready to say the Lord's Prayer. And I walked in, and every single person in that group sat down and had another meeting for me. That was my miracle. Since that day, I have not wanted to have another drink again. I have romanticized it about it when I see wine commercials on the Traver- Travel Channel. <laughs> I have maybe thought about it while I'm floating around in my pool, but I have never, ever had the need or the desire to pick up a drink since that day at the USF 164 group. That is my miracle group. When people say they've been struck sober, I was struck stupid. Because that was the first day that I learned how to feel, learned how to reason, learned how to be cognitively aware of my surroundings and make decisions. And I still don't remember that meeting. I don't know what I said. But I was told I was pretty pitiful. I was also 35 pounds thinner. Thank God for sobriety. (laughs) Acceptance. But anyway... That is my story. Quitting drinking was easy for me once I got there. It took me 28 years as an alcoholic and as someone who knew that she was going to die with a drink in her hand. I was going to own a pub and I was going to be the one sitting at the seat next to the cash register. That was my. I could not imagine my life without alcohol. Something happened that day, and it wasn't before the AA meeting. It was at that meeting that changed my life. I am so grateful for the people that were at that meeting. I would love to say the names of those people because quite a few of them are here, but I don't want to embarrass them. Um, But one thing that I do know, quitting drinking wasn't difficult for me. Life is not difficult for me anymore either. It's challenging, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. That miracle group gave me a new grasp on my life. And when I have a really good day, and we all have them every now and then, I'm talking about one of those knockout, drag out, fantastic, awesome days. Not only when everything goes perfect and as planned, but when you feel it in your heart, you know there's a universal reason why you are here. I have those days every now and then. And I am flabbergasted with the power that God has given me with this new awakening of the spiritual journey that AA has brought to me. It's a little embarrassing for me to say that because it sounds so preachy. But when you have a day like that, you know what I'm talking about. And I wish all of you one day like that this week where you just feel so in the realm of the universal good that God has meant for you and we all know that it would not have been possible without this fellowship our friends and our family and the compassion that we all have for one another and uh, I guess that's it guys (laughs) thank you very much
0: Awesome job. The only thing, I mean, what a wonderful story. But, uh, you know, I remember when I was in treatment and just starting out in this with days of sobriety. I remember watching people pick up 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days. And looking at them saying, that's impossible. How did you do it? Never, ever discount the time that you have if you have a day. You're a miracle. Speaking of miracles, um, the the next gentleman that's going to speak is is near and dear to my heart. The 164 group blossomed out of a a trailer over on 12th Avenue with three friends and their sponsees. And um, not always see each other every week. They're not always here, but they're always in my heart. And, uh, this is one of those gentlemen, and it was his trailer. And, um, for that I always have gratitude. And, um, if there's a spiritual being in this world who's human, um, this guy's his embodiment. Um, sometimes what comes out of a mouth doesn't always fit the appearance. Um, and when I hear him speak, I hear God, uh, coming forward. And, uh, with that,
2: It is. I was sitting in the back and enjoying every bit of this day. My name is Eric, and I am a recovered alcoholic, and I say that because my sponsor told me to, and it's told to me out of this book to announce myself as a recovered alcoholic, having worked the steps in order and had a spiritual awakening. I don't do that to differentiate myself from anybody in this room. I do it just to say that I've worked the steps. Today I'm here to talk about step 11. It's one of the steps that uh, early on I uh, didn't work very diligently. And in the research that I've done for this, because I don't speak on this step at this workshop, uh, I've always done step 12. So they took me out of my comfort zone and speaking on this one, I actually did some research on this one. The old timers, uh, didn't work it diligently, uh, in the beginning either. And I read some stuff that, uh, Bill Wilson wrote and, uh, in his 24th year when he started writing on emotional sobriety and, uh, when he actually started working this step diligently and started noticing some changes in his own sobriety. So, With that, I'm going to come out of the big book and uh, not lean on my own understanding for a few minutes. Step 11 on page 85, if you want to follow along, it says, Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. What is prayer and meditation? Prayer is talking to God, and meditation is listening to. For so long in my non-recovered years, I did a lot of foxhole prayers. God, get me out of this, and I'll do this. God, just get me out of jail this time, and I'll do this. God, just don't let me die this time, and I'll I'll do this. And in those last days on Skipper Road, out on that railroad track, I was praying, God, just let, me, let this train hit me and end all of this. But after working the steps, I didn't want that anymore. But I was still pulling God out of my pocket. He was still that small. Remember, I had just turned my will and my life over to this care of this God of my understanding at that time. And at this point in my recovery. I'm learning that God grows. my And my understanding of God grows. And today. God is beyond my understanding. I know that might be hard to. Hard to understand but. I believe today that. This big wonderful God no longer fits in my pocket, no longer fits in this room. I struggled earlier this year with, with um, my religious views of God, and my AA view of God, and He brought me through that sober. But let's not—I'm not, not going to delve into that. I'm going to delve into what I do in prayer and meditation. But what brought me through that was prayer and meditation. What do I do on a daily, ba- daily basis? It says that when I retire at night, I constructively review my day. Where was I resentful? Where was I dishonest or afraid? Where was I selfish? Doesn't this sound like another step that I just did? You know, I'm starting to take some inventory of my day. Do I owe somebody an apology? Do I owe an amends? Is there something that I've kept to myself in this inventory that I'm taking that I need to discuss with somebody? My sponsors sometimes ask, hey, are you working your 11 step? I haven't gotten a call or an email from you. You're not discussing things with me. Of course, I have several friends that I keep in contact in here and I discuss my 11 step with them. But um, is there something about What's going on with me in this inventory that I need to discuss with somebody else? Some discovery that's come up in my in my uh, in my inventory. Were we kind and loving toward all? What what could I have done better? But we must be careful not to drift into worry. Don't pull out the bat and start beating ourselves up. It's not going to help. Because it's easy to do that. I I mean, even at almost nine years sober, I'll get into that inventory and it's like, man, I shouldn't be doing these stupid things at almost nine years sober. What good is that going to do? The book tells me it's progress, not perfection. The thing is, is that this inventory gives me something that I can work towards. It gives me a... A diagram. And it also gives me a outline of actually how far I've come. When I first came into the program, I didn't care who I hurt. Today I try to live my life not trying to hurt others. It's a want, and I actually feel remorse. That God consciousness and my own conscience is, my first sponsor called it a conscience volume. In the third step, it was turned up. And when I do step on others' toes, instantly I start to have a feeling. For me, it's guilt and shame that I've hurt somebody. Or I start to know that I've done something wrong. Well, in this inventory at night, I start to know, hey, you know what? I I spoke to that. I work at the veterans' hospital. I spoke to that veteran in a way that maybe I shouldn't have. Or I had an attitude with, with my boss today When I go into work tomorrow, I need to make an amends to that person. And if I don't feel like doing that, I need to ask myself if I really think I'm an alcoholic. What do I do in the morning? What I do... I go find a place where I can get quiet, because I have kids that are now that are getting ready for school, for about 15, 20 minutes. I quiet what's going on in my head, because I have all these, Dan talked about limos. I have CEOs in my head telling me, oh, it's time to work out, it's time to get on the computer, it's time to get ready for work, it's... A- I practice some deep breathing, and I quiet those voices in my head, and I start to think about the day ahead, and I lay out a plan before my higher power, and I say, is this okay, and I wait. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental facilities with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may be faced with indecisions, We may not be able to determine which course of action for that day is going to be the right one. Here's where that saying, uh, take it easy, comes about. Not about the steps. (laughs) Take it easy comes from relax. About this thought process about what's... I have this thing that I want to do, but it's not coming clear whether I should do this. Relax and take it easy. The answer will come if you really... Take a look at what God wants you to do. Easy does it, right? We are often surprised how the right answers will come. Early on, I paid for this in a lot of of, uh, interesting ways. I used to say, all right, God, I'm going to give you my work, and I'm going to give you this thing, and I'm going to... But I'm going to take care of my laundry, and I'm going to take care of my car, and I'm going to take... And I I learned that I needed to turn a lot of things over to God and and, uh, and let him have it all. One of the big things for me was that I didn't want to turn my health over. Um, I suffer from chronic migraine, and I suffer from a couple of other things uh, that I acquired while I was in the military. And... I carried around a lot of resentment because of it, and uh, I owed a couple of doctor's amends when, um, when I really looked at it, and I went back and made those, and I'm much more comfortable about it, but it was because I was taking my will back in those areas of my life, and it wasn't working too well. What do I do when I become restless, irritable, and discontented? Prayer should be done throughout the day. Like I said, I used to pray just when I was in trouble. Now I pray almost constantly. I can delve back into self many times each day. And when this happens, I go, God, your will be done, not mine. I have to remember that I'm God's being, and I need to carry his will into my life and in all areas. When I start getting restless, irritable, and discontented, I know that I'm sitting in self. I take a look at what's going on with me, say that prayer, and I'm usually on much better footing. Again, if I've stepped on toes while I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, I make that amends immediately. I don't let those things sit anymore. If I let those things sit, then... Just like it said in the fourth step, then I step on the toes of others, they retaliate, I build resentments, and eventually it's going to become a much bigger problem. By doing the 11th step, we become much more efficient when we're not sitting there worried, worried about yesterday and tomorrow and we're sitting in today, it keeps us, God's plan and God's want for us is to be right here, right now. If we're sitting in tomorrow and we're sitting in yesterday, we might miss the spiritual experience that's happening right here, right now. God's in this moment. And through me- prayer and meditation, I get to stay in this moment right here. My grand sponsor, who died two years ago, talked about prayer and meditation. And the first time I called him, I was struggling. And he had the problem that I was struggling with. And he asked me, he said, Eric, have you been meditating? And I said, I meditate a little bit. And he goes, Call me back in a year when you practice meditation. I thought it was rough. But I did. I sat down and I started doing it as outlined in this book. And my life started to change. And I started to struggle with that. Started to struggle less with that area of my life. And at that point he became willing to help me. Instruct me. In that area of my life. On things that he had experience in. I looked up. And I'm going to end with just a couple of things out of uh... bill Will wilson's uh... writings from uh... from the grapevine and uh... you can find these in uh... in uh... language of the heart it's one of my one of my favorite uh, pastime books but uh... i found like i said it's it's where i found out that they were were uh that he struggled too with the 11th step not struggled with it but struggled with practicing it on a daily basis The chances are better than than even that we shall locate our trouble in our misunderstanding or neglect of 11 of AA's step 11 prayer and meditation and the guidance of God The other steps can keep most of us sober and somehow functioning, but step 11 can keep us growing if we try hard and work at it continually. If we expand even 5% of the time spent on step 11 that we habitually and rightly lavish on step 12, the results will be wonderfully far-reaching. So if we spend just a little bit more time in step 11, he says that we'll grow. As we go along with this process of prayer, we begin to add up the results. If we persist, we will almost surely find more serenity, more tolerance, less fear, and less anger. We will acquire a quiet courage, the kind that does not strain us. We can look at so-called failure and success for what they really are. Problems and calamity will begin to mean instruction instead of destruction. We will feel freer and saner. The idea that we may have been hypnotizing ourselves by auto-suggestion will become laughable. Our sense of purpose and direction will increase. Our tensions and anxiety will commence to fade. Our physical health will likely improve. Wonderful and unaccountable things will start to happen. Twisted relationships within our families and on the outside will unaccountably improve. So, I even found promises there. Guys, this has been a wonderful thing. I want to thank you for the privilege of speaking before you. Thank you so much, and y'all have a great day. Okay, I'm not Toby, but I am an alcoholic. And uh, our next speaker is going to cover step 12. And then Toby will be back in to do the closing and the chips and everything. And with that, step
3: twelve. Will L. Step twelve. I'm Will. I'm an alcoholic. Will. Um. This Friday is July thirteenth, two thousand and ten. I have a sponsor and I sponsor others. Step twelve. Having had a spirit, ha, oh, spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. It's a two-part right there, okay? You know, having had the spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, try to carry this message. So it's working with others. And the second half is living this, practicing these principles in all of our affairs. This book is set up in a way to. From the very beginning, you know, in the forward to the second edition, XVI, um, at the very bottom it says, This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another alcoholic as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent sobriety. Okay? This is in the forward to the second edition. This is in the very beginning of the book. So it kind of, to me, it indicates that there's, Pretty important thing to do. And um, forward to the third edition, in spite of the great increase in size and span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. That is the essence of the 12th step. It's taking the time to show somebody else what was shown to you. And in my opinion, and I stress my opinion, it is the, I'm not going to say it's the, the most important step. I will say, it, in my opinion, it's the most fulfilling step. Because you get to see the light and come on in somebody else's eyes. You get to see the hope grow as they, they stay sober and they start to regain and rebuild their life. There's an entire chapter devoted to working with others. You know, on page 88, this next chapter is devoted entirely to step 12. There's there's a whole chapter devoted to working with others. So again, this tells me this is imperative, extremely important. You know, forgive me for kind of jumping around a little bit, but This first paragraph right here, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is the 12th suggestion. And Abram kind of hit on it. This is, um, I don't read this as a suggestion. I read this, if I want to survive in AA, this is what I do. And this is what my sponsor told me that I would be doing. When he took me through the through the steps out of this book, he set it up and laid it out as a template for me to follow when I worked with somebody else, when I took them through the steps. You know, and that has been the most fulfilling part of the program for me. You know, those nine-step promises, they come true in spades. You know, Kitty was talking or no, who, who did 9-step? Ruthie, that's right, yes. You did a fantastic job. I loved it. I always love hearing what you have to say. Um, you can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. I learned that one. Because I was very ill when I came in. You know, I, I was so delusional when I first came in. I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. And my sponsor was the person that I bounced everything off of so that I could decipher what was correct and what was false. Because I was so broken when I came in that I didn't know any better. And and it's been a fulfilling process to, to help other guys with that same thing. You know, to help them see the difference between their will and, and God's will. Where they're putting influence of their own will on, on, on lives. And Life will take on new meaning, to watch others recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. That is absolutely 100% correct for me. You know, the fellowship is such an important part of my life, it is a good majority of my life. It is um, the most beautiful thing that that I have today, you know, is my sobriety. And it's all because somebody took the time to 12-step me. When I was in treatment, I met a guy on my second day that gave me hope, that gave me the idea that there was a better way to live. And he showed me how to do it by the way that he lived, which is the essence of the second part of this 12-step, which is live by these principles, and it's not—it's a continual work in progress for me. Um, you know, I have—I have like I have days where I'm like super spiritual, and you know, and there's other days where I really have to stop because my first reaction is to not live by principle, and that's where, you know, when you live in ten, eleven, and twelve, and practice these principles in all your affairs, that's where the the continual growth happens. You know, because if you live by these principles and you don't stray from them, you won't ever have to pick up another white chip again. You know, that's what this book tells me. Is that if I live this way of life day in and day out, not when it's fun, when it's easy, when it's shiny, when it's a rough day. You know, live by these principles day in and day out is the essence of practicing these principles in all your affairs. And this includes all avenues of life. You know, for me personally, like when I was going through through my ninth step and making my list, I too had a large list of financial institutions that I owed money to. And I, my sponsor kind of had corrected me because I had the idea of when when to do so would injure them or others. Well, I was others and that would injure me Having to pay them. And he told me. He, he I'll paraphrase it. But. He very nicely told me. That that was not the case. That. If I wanted to survive. That was what I would have to do. And I haven't fully completed all of that yet. But I'm continually to work towards it. You know I'm paying off things little by little. And. Every day, it, 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 it's like a new new opportunity for growth, and and that's what th- this this program teaches us, you know. And we and the way that we show the newcomer how it's done is by living it ourselves. And and when I live this program, when it's tough, you know, other people see that, you know, because and, and, and like early on in recovery for me, like I struggled with with an illness that kind of plagued every avenue in my life. And for a long time, I, I did the poor me, poor me. And it took me a long time and a lot of work and processing to kind of see that it may have had nothing to do with me. It may have been for somebody else, and it may have been just so that they could see what I was going through, and to see that it that they too could go through it without having to pick up a drink. And, and that was the way that I was able to process some tough situations. And when other people see. That we're living this program, and that we're experiencing those nine-step promises, it truly is a program of attraction rather than promotion. When it's do as I do, then you've got you've got a, a place of, of ground to stand on. Because I remember early on when I was when I was kind of coming around, and I thought I had everything in the bag, and I knew everything. I would watch other people and I would, I would always see that their actions didn't match their words. And I always was, early on, like I kind of had, I worked with my sponsor about it, but I, I kind of had judgment issues. You know? And, and it was, I would always, I was judging people. Why do they get away with not having to do the work that I have to do so that I don't drink? And I was always very jealous. And, and my sponsor kind of pulled me aside, and he kind of helped me with, with some things. And, and to see that everything comes full circle. You know, this isn't, you know, in the, where it talks about half measures avail us nothing. When I half-step this program, I get nothing back. And, and I kind of started to see that come to fruition with other people because there was um, a while back like some a couple friends went out one died and those were some guys that I was that I was jealous of and my sponsor kind of came to me and he said do you, you, you see like the, that's half measures what do you have to be jealous of and I was like okay you know that was pretty powerful for me and that's when I, I truly, truly put, put, started putting in even more work, because I didn't get sober to just be content, to be semi happy. I got I got sober because of the the nine step promises that my sponsor talked to me about. And it was, it's been it's been an amazing ride, and and that's why I put in the work that I put in. And that's why I, I, I work with others, because that, like it talks about, that's the bright spot of our lives. And it's been, it's been an amazing process, and I had all this other stuff to do. You know, and at the very end, on page 103, it says, After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were but a symbol. Besides, we've stopped fighting every, anybody and everything. We have to. You know, and that's what this program is. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very simple. It's not complicated. I make things complicated. And when I keep things simple and I stick to the basics and I live this program rather than implement the ideas that I think it should be, and stay out of as much self will as possible and continually stay humble enough to listen and take suggestions i get to stay here you know and i get to continue to work with others as i was worked with and that's that's this program you know and that's why it's so it's so powerful because you get to see people recreate their lives. You get to see people have the families back, and you get to see this program grow and flourish. You get to see it become something that, from from hopeless to hopeful, you know. And that's what that's what keeps me on fire because there's days when I'm not totally jazzed by recovery, and it's a it's a have to. It's not a get to. And that's where you know it's imperative for me to continually work with other people because that 12 step work right there that ensures that I'll stay here that ensures that I be, that I that I don't can that I don't suffer again from untreated alcoholism as the book talks about you know that is where the miracle happens because you get to see that guy pick up his white chip pick up his 30 days pick up his 6 months pick up his year you know you get to see him grow and and I got to have a hand in that you know, if I step out of the way and let God flow through me, the miracle happens. And when I can st- stay out of the way long enough to let the miracle happen, that is the beauty of this program. So, Toby, thank you for asking me to, to come up and, and share about the twelve step of my experience with it. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll close. Thank you very much. <laughs>